Welcome to the America's Workforce Radio Podcast, the flagship production of the American Workers Radio and Podcast Network, where organized labor and its never-ending fight to protect the rights of the American worker come first. Now, presented by LIUNA, Laborers International Union of North America, here's your host, Ed Flash Ferens. Now New York Times tech workers go on strike. Two big wins for IATSE, a good day for progressives. And today on the show, the Alliance for American Manufacturing, and we'll talk about the Labor Board's decision on the joint employers rule. Welcome to the Wednesday, November 8th edition of America's Workforce, where we are available on at least five platforms. That includes Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Pandora. We have two guests on the show today. It's the return of Scott Paul, the president of the Alliance for American Manufacturing, one of our longtime sponsors here on America's Workforce, AmericanManufacturing.org. Scott's a pretty happy camper because of the new UAW contracts, which we know include wage gains. But he says the contracts also include a form of industrial policy, which is very, very important. And that is something that we have talked about on this show, my God, for at least two decades, an industrial or manufacturing policy. There's a number of countries, especially in Europe, Germany for one, that has a manufacturing policy and it's been working. Now we are seeing manufacturing jobs come back from China, from Mexico, but not enough of them. We lost some, we lost millions of manufacturing jobs due to bad trade deals. But we got to make sure those are good jobs and they got good wages and good benefits. And we'll talk about all of that. Also, this uh, recovery post-pandemic, says Scott, has been the most equitable recovery in history. And that's actually coming from the Treasury Department. The report finds that the speed and the strength of the response by the Biden-Harris administration helped to thwart the worst economic outcomes anticipated from the COVID shock for black and Hispanic families. And that, across a broad array of economic indicators, the financial well-being of black and Hispanic families have remained strong relative to recoveries in recent history. And if you go back looking at the data, anytime there's an economic crash, it's the people, the minorities, females, people of color that are hit the hardest. Well, this time it didn't work that way. And speaking of the recovery, we got some uh, new information on the, uh, the White House plan of investing in America. We're at $302.4 billion dollars in public infrastructure and clean energy investments in the United States. And that is translating to a whole lot of jobs. We'll talk more about the Buy America policies, and there's some history on this. Buy American rules have actually been in place since 1933, and they ensure that certain direct federal purchases are made in America. Makes sense, right? Buy America rules in place since 1982 apply to road, bridge, and mass transit projects. But, but here's the problem. 
The laws have been riddled with loopholes and waivers. Recently, Congress and the Biden administration have acted to expand their coverage and strengthen their requirements through executive orders and build America by America rules. And that happened right after uh, Biden took office in 2021. And these are pretty popular ideas. <laughs> by America is so popular. One poll found 83 percent of registered voters favor investing our taxpayer money into American-made products instead of imports. Boy, we have a long way to go because there's a lot of imports in the stores. So uh, Scott Paul is going to be our first guest. Later in the show, we're going to go to Andrew Strom. He is our labor dissector. And what happened recently, and this is from the National Labor Relations Board, they issued a new ruling on what they call the joint employers rule. Now, this mandate will take effect at the end of December, December 26. And in a nutshell, Andrew's going to explain what's going on here. I, I think the best way to tell you what this is all about, I'm going to give you an example. Think of a local McDonald's franchise and then a McDonald's headquarters in Chicago, okay? They got the franchise and the headquarters. Both essentially control a worker from wages and hours to duties and work rules to hiring and firing to uniforms and training. Well, if that's the case, then both are responsible for obeying or breaking labor law. And that has been happening because we're seeing fast food workers trying to organize. So it should be easier for workers to organize and bargain because of this change. And during the previous administration, it went the other way. They were on the side of corporations, which is no surprise. So Andrew's going to take a look at that and explain it in more detail as our second guest here on America's Workforce. Now, a brief look into the world of labor. The segment brought to you by Boyd Watterson, Asset Management, offering fixed income, real estate, and equity investment options to clients nationwide. Well, the big story yesterday was the election. And Democrats, well, they had plenty of good news to celebrate in uh, the off-year elections yesterday. Reproductive rights supporters won an Ohio ballot measure. And the Democratic governor of Kentucky, which is a deep red state, he held on to his office by campaigning on reproductive rights and painting his opponent as an extremist. Also, a Democrat won an open seat on the Pennsylvania Supreme Court and Democrats took full control of the Virginia State House. Now, the Republican governor there was trying to turn the Senate to the GOP side. There was the House on the GOP side, the Senate on the Democratic side. Well, guess what? <laughs> the Senate stayed Democratic. The House went Democratic. A lot of things happening. Now, in the state of Ohio, we talked to a Tim Berga yesterday. Tim, of course, the president of the Ohio AFL-CIO, and he let us know that there were 44 labor candidates, you know, people that w were in their union, had union positions, and uh, one of them, we don't have all the results right now, but one of them, we are proud to announce, won the mayor's seat in Canton, Ohio, and that's Bill Shear II. Bill is a member of Iron Workers Local 17, 
the very place that we record America's workforce each and every day. So congratulations to Bill Shear, who will take over the mayor's seat in the beginning of the new year. New York Times tech workers went on strike last week to protest the paper's return to office policies. The Times Tech Guild, which consists of nearly 700 software engineers, data analysts, project managers, and designers who voted to unionize in March of last year, signed off early and protested outside the Times building seeking flexible work policies. Well, last year, the union filed a return-to-office-related complaint with the National Labor Relations Board, which was dropped after the Guild reached a contract deal with the newspaper. That was in May. The Tech Guild has support from the New York Times Guild, which represents the majority of the Times newsroom workers. The theatrical and stage employees, better known as IATSE, racked up two unionizing wins in the first two days of this month, and on opposite sides of the country, mind you. One was in Los Angeles, and that was 93% to 7% among production workers at the Walt Disney Animation Studios. And that's for the Animation Guild Local 839. Production coordinator Hannah Bialoski called it a strong precedent for all other production management workers in the animation industry hoping to organize. No surprise here, Disney fought the organizing drive by claiming production supervisors and production managers at the studios were supervisors and confidential employees so they couldn't unionize. Well, it didn't work. The uh, Labor Board's L.A. regional director, whose office ran the election, rejected that claim, a common one by bosses seeking to stop unionization drives through what one worker called gerrymandering the bargaining unit. In the meantime, IATSE locals 84 and 798 and the United Scenic Artists local 829 won a union recognition vote at the Goodspeed Musical Theater. This is in East Haddam, Connecticut. The 45 workers in the bargaining unit include hairstylists, costume shop, and scenic shop workers. That organizing drive took about a year. Got a comment here from Matthew Loeb. Now, Matthew is the national president of IATSE, and this is what he said. This moment is not just a victory for workers at Goodspeed but an inspiration for workers at regional theaters all around the country. We are proud to welcome Goodspeed workers into our growing ranks and stand ready to support them in future negotiations. California's Governor Gavin Newsom has vetoed a bill that would have banned fully driverless heavyweight trucks in his state. Passed relatively smoothly by the California Senate, with support from a bipartisan group of lawmakers, Assembly Bill 316 would have required that trucks weighing more than 10,000 pounds have a human driver in them when operating in public roads. Well, that makes sense. The bill's opponents, including the Teamsters, hope the bill would address both safety and job displacement concerns. The California Federation of Labor estimated that driverless trucks could cost the state upwards of 200,000 jobs.
All right, quick break. When we come back, Scott Paul on behalf of the Alliance for American Manufacturing. You're listening to America's Workforce with Ed Flash Ferrans. It takes Lyuna to build North America's infrastructure. From roads and bridges to schools and skyscrapers, the men and women of Lyuna, the Laborers International Union of North America, build the projects we depend on. From constructing the Freedom Tower on the site of the former World Trade Center to untangling Washington, D.C.'s congested interstate, Lyuna members do the work that matters. Find out what it takes to be built by Lyuna at lyuna.org. That's L-I-U-N-A dot org. We're the nurses, firefighters, and claims representatives that help keep our government services running. We respond to natural disasters. We care for our nation's veterans. And we investigate discrimination in the workplace. We are federal and D.C. government workers. And we are proud to serve the American people. Working in more than 70 agencies across the government, we know we can fulfill our mission because our union has our back. Learn more at afge.org. Paid for by the American Federation of Government Employees, AFL-CIO. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the United Steelworkers. You can find more at usw.org. A great union requires a reliable election system. Survey and Ballot Systems is a trusted election partner with more than 30 years of expertise in managing union elections. By partnering with SBS, your union can ensure it gets an auditable process and a high level of customer service. SBS is here to help you conduct your union vote securely, transparently, and with trust building always in mind. Visit SurveyAndBalladSystems.com to learn more. The Heat and Frost Insulators and Allied Workers are proud to be a title sponsor for America's Workforce Radio. The Insulators Union is leading the way in the mechanical insulation industry, fire stopping, and infectious disease control. Regarded as North America's energy conservation specialist, these professionals are known for their professional work and dedication. You can learn more about the Insulators Union at insulators.org. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the Ironworkers. You can find more at ironworkers.org. America's Workforce is sponsored in part by Boyd Watterson Asset Management, LLC. Find out more about our investment solutions tailored to meet the needs of Taft-Hartley funds at voidwaterson.com. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the Communication Workers of America. You can find more at cwa-union.org. Now, back to America's Workforce. Here's Ed Flash Ferens. And remember, you can check us out on Facebook or follow us on X, formerly known as Twitter. That would be AWF Union Podcast. By the way, this next segment brought to you in part by the North Coast Labor Federation. Let's go to the nation's capital and welcome back to the show. Scott Paul he hasn't been on for a number of months. He heads the Alliance for American Manufacturing, AmericanManufacturing.org. I talk about them on the show all the time because we want to make sure that the products are made in America. Why? Because we're talking about good jobs. Bring those jobs back from Mexico, from China, Make sure that we can continue to make them here because we got the best skilled workforce in the entire world. That goes without saying. Scott Paul, welcome back to the show. I'll tell you, there's a lot of things that have happened since we last talked. Number one, well, you got the Teamsters with a new contract. We got the UAW. It's almost, almost finalized here. But I was talking about this at the beginning of the show. There's something that, that you and I have discussed in previous shows, industrial policy or a manufacturing policy. And it's good 
that we're talking about it once again. So, Scott, welcome back and talk to me more about this industrial policy. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. Flash, it's great to be back on. And uh, this is one case where uh, economic policy uh, is actually working for manufacturing workers. Uh, Generally, we've been swimming upstream for the last couple of decades because of trade deals and just kind of unleashing the financial sector and neglecting our own competitiveness and infrastructure. But uh, we're at a moment where, you know, virtually all the levers of government are, you know, pushed towards manufacturing. We have investment coming in to rebuild our infrastructure, everything from our roads and bridges to our broadband and that helps competitiveness. That also builds a demand for manufactured goods. You know, we have a program designed to incentivize locating new semiconductor production factories in the United States, and that is unleashing, you know, dozens upon dozens of announcements of new semiconductor plants coming to the U.S. for the first time in a generation. And we have incentives to scale up clean energy manufacturing in the United States, uh, whether that be solar, wind, battery production, electric vehicle, and others, so that we're not bringing that stuff in from China um, while we're trying to uh, decarbonize our economy. And uh, that is unleashing billions and billions of investment uh, around the country and uh, is resulting in new factories. And Flash, there's one thing that those new factories mean, it's new jobs. And mm-hmm. these are great jobs. And, you know, particularly with the scales, uh, I would say level set now, because they had really been tilted against workers and union contracts in the past. Now that there is that level playing field, I think, you can see what uh, what, what the power of folks like uh, the UAW or uh, others who are negotiating contracts can bring. And and that's jobs, that's wage increases, and that's going to benefit everybody uh, down the road. To your point, Scott, I was talking yesterday about Stellantis. They even announced, and this was part of the negotiations with the UAW, of reopening the plant in Belvedere. There's three, I think it's 1,300 jobs that's uh, that's going to happen there and that plant was slated to close but that's all part of the negotiation let me ask you this i saw your press release on friday about and this is when the bureau of labor statistics came out with the october numbers now manufacturing took a hit which was primarily because of the uaw strike what was it was uh, like thirty-five thousand jobs yeah. down in manufacturing but wasn't it like thirty-two thousand were the result of the uaw is that right well, well, yeah, yeah, directly, and then there's indirectly too. And again, this is just temporary, right? I mean, and, and if you're if you're off the job, that's counted as a uh, as a layoff. Um, mm-hmm. So, so as a job loss. So, you saw that at the factories they were actively striking, and then the suppliers that had to temporarily um, halt. Um, but you'll see a bunch of that stuff come back online. Um, and so, it was a that's a lot of noise in the report. I think generally. You know, we've seen an upward trend uh, in manufacturing jobs, and uh, it, there was a real 
uh, a, a real rocket boost last year. You know, it's it's been more steady this year, but it's happening, and we know more are on the way uh, because there's factories being built all over the country um, right now. But that's yeah, we we ought to see a correction um, in, in that jobs report the next time uh, it, it comes out um, at, at the uh, at the beginning of December. Things things will probably look uh, a lot different, Flash, than they did on that one. Scott, in previous conversations, when we were talking about uh, policy here and uh, job creation and manufacturing jobs, you're still kind of cautious because there, there's still some bumps in the road, and we got to make sure we're laser focused on continuing that trend. Can you uh, can you explain the importance of, of continuing this right now? Yeah, I, I'm happy to, and and yeah, we can't take any of this for granted because we know that particularly over the last 30 years or so that that counting on sustained manufacturing growth has been incredibly difficult to do and there's a lot of things that stand in the way of that the first is going into recession um and and that's the that tends to be the biggest killer of manufacturing jobs and so we gotta we gotta make sure that that doesn't happen uh second you know interest rates the fed you know has been trying to slow down the economy uh, a little bit uh, and mm-hmm. slow down inflation and interest rates are pretty high. And, you know, that that eventually is going to have a, a ripple effect where if folks are buying fewer homes or fewer cars, that's going to have an impact on manufacturing. So my hope is that we're about at the end of those interest rate hikes and they can start bringing them down. So what the Federal Reserve does is very important. The other thing that's going to be important to look at, and this is something that, that most people don't think about every day. I have to for my job, but that is that, you know, whether whether it feels like it or not, the United States right now is probably the strongest economy in the world. Um, we're doing very well. Uh, there's a lot of weakness uh, around the globe, and, um, you know, people may say, yay, we're number one, but one thing that that does is, particularly in a country like China, as their economy gets weaker, they look to uh, what I would say export their way out of uh, problems, and they'll they'll dump products on the world market that will bring down prices to an impossible level where our guys can't compete, and that'll mean that our factories will slow down, or or will 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 shut down, and so we we definitely have to be on the lookout for those unfair trade practices, and then finally, you know, our our policy mistakes. And what we don't want is for the the House Republicans in particular to try to eviscerate a policy just because, uh, you know, it had Biden's signature on it. Uh, and that those are things like infrastructure, uh, like those investments uh, in electric vehicles uh, or those investments, investments in semiconductors. I mean, Flash, those those investments are helping you know, uh, blue states, purple states, red states, everywhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you know, if, if they tried to, to roll those back, that would be a huge mistake, and, and that would be a, a blow to manufacturing. Scott Paul, president of the Alliance for American Manufacturing, one of the many proud sponsors of America's Workforce, AmericanManufacturing.org is a website. Lots of really good information, videos, and podcasts on that website you might want to check out. We'll continue with Scott later in the show. We're going to check in with Andrew Strom. He is a contributor to the On Labor blog. He's going to talk about the uh, joint employer rule 
that the Labor Board just announced. Back in a few minutes. This is America's Workforce. More shows available at awfradio.com. It takes Lyuna to power North America with affordable energy. The men and women of Lyuna, the Laborers International Union of North America, have the skills needed to build and maintain oil, natural gas, nuclear, solar, and wind projects that are shaping America's energy future. From new energy tech to retrofitted facilities, Lyuna members do it all. Find out what it takes to be powered by Lyuna at Lyuna.org. That's L-I-U-N-A. Attention members of the Heat and Frost Insulators Union who are interested in traveling. Central Ohio has more construction projects on the books than anywhere in the U.S. Mega projects, large and medium-sized jobs are creating more work than our local 50 brothers and sisters can handle. Projects like Intel, the Honda LG battery plant, and multiple data centers for Facebook, Google, and Amazon offer union wages, overtime, exciting incentives. Local 50 is seeking union travelers to meet the needs of its signatory contractors who can put you to work immediately. If you're a member in good standing and interested in the work opportunities in Central Ohio, visit insulators50.com forward slash AWF travel for more information. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the International Brotherhood of Teamsters, where you can find more at teamster.org. There is unity and strength for workers. We are the USW. We are the USW. The United, United Steelworkers. Steel the largest industrial union in North America. We represent 850,000 members in, in the, the US, US, Canada, and, and the, the Caribbean. Caribbean. We work in metals, rubber, chemicals, paper, oil refining, atomic energy, and the service sector. We are steelworkers, standing strong and fighting for what's right. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the United Auto Workers. Find more at uaw.org. This segment of America's Workforce is brought to you by Survey and Ballot Systems. SBS has been providing unions with secure and flexible election options for over 30 years. Visit surveyandballotsystems.com to learn more. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the Heat and Frost Insulators Labor Management Cooperative Trust. Find out more at insulators.org forward slash LMCT. Now, back to Ed Flash Ferentz with America's Workforce. And remember, you can check us out on at least five platforms. That includes Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Pandora. When you get an opportunity, just sign up and receive our shows on a regular basis and give us a rating. We always appreciate those five-star ratings, so please keep them coming. By the way, if you like a show, please share that show because our downloads have exploded this year. Scott Paul is joining us on our live line today. He's the president of the Alliance for American Manufacturing. Scott, last time you and I talked, we were like in the top uh, maybe 15% of all podcasts. And in the last couple of months, well, it went from 15 to 5. Now we're down to 1%. We're the top right. 1%. Yeah, <laughs> it's really exploded here. And it's been, well, frankly, it's been a great year for labor. Let's be honest. I mean, you got a labor-friendly uh, administration. I mean, you, we were talking in the first segment about job creation. It, it's it's happening, and we're seeing some incredible organizing wins and labor union victories with the Teamsters. We talked about the UAW. It's all good. And let's talk more about this recovery because it's important. When Biden took office, I mean, things were not good. Things were not good. 
And these policies are making a difference. Mainstream media may not be picking up on that, but we talk about it here on the show. I want to reference this uh, Treasury Department report on having an equitable, and the key word is an equitable economic recovery post-pandemic. Can you explain what they what they came up with? Yeah, yeah, I'd be happy to. And just, just to set the table on this, you know, in the past, like during the Great Recession and in other, uh, other downturns, Flash, what has happened is that when we come out of it, um, th- there's a couple of characteristics that we almost always see. One is that the rich uh, recover faster than the poor, um, oh, yeah. and the middle class gets hollowed out, and that within that, uh, that uh, vulnerable populations uh, and uh, you know eth- ethnic uh, you know demographic minorities like uh, black workers, uh, Latino workers tend to get hit the hardest uh, of everyone and, and their, their families. And so, uh, one thing that was dramatically different about the recovery after the pandemic. Uh, was that the opposite happened, is that the, the, the middle class was strengthened um, and that uh, black and Hispanic families, uh, in addition to white families, uh, have, uh, you know, have, have seen growths in, uh, in wealth uh, and, and the gap is closing. Uh, which is good, and that uh, unemployment rates, uh, you know, went down for black and Hispanic workers, uh, and, and those are that gap is closing with with white workers because they've traditionally been very, you know, much higher uh, for those populations. Um, home ownership, uh, foreclosure. I mean, you, you know, there's lots of different data points to look at, but um, this this was all pretty remarkable and in flash i think this is the most important thing is that uh, it's a result it's not an accident right it's not it's not it's not an accident that this happened it was it was about policy and the types of uh recovery act resources that were available like the child care tax credit or some of the supplemental income or the things to get families through all of this and um the efforts to get people back uh on, on the job as well. So I think that there's a, you know, you don't, you never want to celebrate uh, having a, having a recession at all, but it's the way that you recover from it. I think that really counts. And um, you know, there, we, we, we've always fallen short, but uh, a good example of where we haven't is how, uh, how it went down from basically, you know, 2020 to, uh, to present. Um, and, and that, that's a testament to, to really, really smart policy. Um, and, and that, you know, that's going to help every, everybody. Yeah. And I, I just wish that message would reverberate more and, uh, that that's a sad part about it. it, but it is happening. The data points are there and this reinforces what Biden and you've heard Biden say, we've got to build the economy from the bottom up and the middle out. Isn't that what's happening right now, in your opinion? That's exactly right. <laughs> it's, it's completely opposite of the trickle-down, right? Uh, or, yeah. you, you know, and as, as, as um, Janet Yellen, the, the, the Treasury Secretary, talks about it in economic terms, it's modern supply side, which is like you're, you're focused on the workers rather than on the wealthy 
or the corporations, but getting resources directly to them, uh, and it makes a big difference. And so the, the one thing that this Treasury report does is it shows that that policy has been effective uh, and that, in fact, we are regrowing the middle class and uh, the, the, that poverty, particularly uh, child poverty, was, was, was slashed. Um, and it's one of the reasons why we need to keep that child care uh, tax credit um, uh, going, even though that is it, that it expired. And so there's, there's lots, there's lots of good evidence that these types of government policy interventions, um, can be useful, uh, as opposed to just giving a big tax cut to corporations, uh, or the wealthy and, and kind of hoping for the best, uh, that that's, that's not what works. And we now have the data to prove it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, you hear so much about tax cuts. I remember, I think it was the state of Kansas. I mean, they cut taxes so much. They had to close some of the schools. So when the new administration came in there and said, hey, you know what? We've gone too far. We, we, I'm sorry. We got to start taxing here. Otherwise, we're going to lose our schools. We're going to lose our population. But uh, uh, it, it's good to know that these policies are making a difference. And, you know, the, the word is filtering through. Talk to me about this, um, I guess, Heather Boucher, I believe she used to be with the Economic Policy Institute, and she's sending out some information, I mean, which is really powerful. You, you mentioned the, uh, the Infrastructure and Jobs Act and also, well, Inflation Reduction Act. You could throw that in there because that's dealing with climate change. Uh, investing in America, and this, I guess this, this number is, probably needs to be updated, $302.4 billion dollars. Is that is that where we are right now, Scott? Yeah, yeah. It, it, that is the uh, so so. First of all, there's the there's the, the the public investment aspect of it, and that's the resources that we've devoted to um, uh, to uh, infrastructure investment, um, EV charging, uh, and also uh, the deployment of, of clean energy. But that that's the amount that 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 has been you know, the, the tax dollars that have been invested in these projects. And the really exciting thing is that the ROI of this, the return on investment, is, is going to be enormous because we have seen um, so many announcements of uh, new factories coming uh, all over the country to build this stuff that uh, it's going to be uh, an extraordinary return. Uh, for taxpayers, and, to, and and we're also just at the very beginning of this because there, yes, there have been three hundred and some billion dollars announced in all over five years. There's going to be one point two trillion dollars worth of infra- infrastructure. There's going to be um, you know about three to four hundred billion dollars in clean energy, and uh, about one hundred and fifty billion dollars in semiconductors, and then there's going to be the the private sector match an investment to all of that. But that the, the exciting thing about that is that this is not, you know, this is not like making an app that's going to make it easier to find a dog walker or something like that. And that's great. You know, I'm happy that we have those, but they don't create a ton of jobs. But these are going to be facilities. They're going to have people in them who have skills, who are going to be building the things that are going to shape the economy of the future. And those workers are going to be well paid. And then they'll be spending that money out in the community uh, and paying their own taxes. 
And so this is what you call like that, that virtuous uh, investment cycle uh, that's going to keep coming back around uh, in, in the community. And so it is a, you know, we've already seen uh, a couple of the tangible fruits of this, but we're very, very much at the very beginning of all of this mm-hmm. flash. Yeah. To your point, Scott, good policies work. They take time. And I think in a couple of years, it could be three, four, five, six years, you're going to see an explosion of good jobs all across America because of those good policies. All right. Just one more question here. The Made in America gift guide. I guess the comment period is over. When are we going to see this come out from the Alliance for American Manufacturing? Yeah, yeah, we're we're really close to to launching this uh, uh, flash, and thanks for for raising it up. This is the tenth anniversary issue of the gift guide. It's going to be bigger than ever, and it's also going to include kind of our our greatest hits or hall of fame, if you will, all, along with some some fresh ideas. And, and that's gonna that that's gonna hit the the week before Thanksgiving, so that week. And um, so you'll have plenty of options when you're thinking about, uh, you know, sitting around the Thanksgiving table or, or Black Friday or over the weekend. And, and a lot of these things you'll just be able to click through and buy. So, um, so we're looking forward to it. Uh, there's lots of, exciting, lots of exciting gift ideas on there, Flash. I'll be looking forward to that in my email, Made in America Gift Guide, on behalf of the Alliance for American Manufacturing. That website again, AmericanManufacturing.org. Looking forward to that as well as another segment with you coming up later in the month or maybe in the beginning of December. How's that sound? Okay. Sounds great to me. Thanks so much for having me on, Flash. Appreciate it. All right. Quick break. When we come back, we're going to check in with Andrew Strom. He's going to talk about the uh, joint employer rule that the Labor Board just announced. Back in a few minutes. This is America's Workforce. It takes Layuna to keep America running. Over 70,000 public employees are part of LIUNA, the Laborers International Union of North America, delivering critical services such as health care and emergency response, as well as maintaining roads and sanitation systems. Even the National Postal Mail Handlers Union, representing over 47,000 U.S. postal workers, is affiliated with LIUNA. Find out what it takes for LIUNA to keep America running at LIUNA.org. That's L-I-U-N-A. The Ironworkers Great Lakes District Council, consisting of eight ironworker local unions in West Virginia, Pennsylvania, Ohio, and Michigan. We build the skylines and bridges along the Great Lakes. With more work than ever before, the Great Lakes District Council is actively searching out the next great ironworker. Whether it's building the next Intel plant or constructing a bridge to safely connect our great cities along the lake. So join the Ironworkers Great Lakes District Council today. Find out how and learn more about the council by visiting IWDistrictCouncil.com. This portion of the show brought to you by the International Union of Bricklayers and Allied Craftworkers. For more information, please visit BACWeb.org. Union members need to be heard. Reliable and convenient union voting has never been more important than it is now. Make voting easy for your membership by working with survey and ballot systems. SBS offers encrypted and monitored solutions that ensure your elections are accurate and accessible for every member through mail-in, online, and in-person voting. Visit surveyandballotsystems.com and take the next step in getting secure and auditable elections. 
America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the International Federation of Professional and Technical Engineers. You can find more at ifpte.org. America's Workforce Radio is sponsored in part by the International Union of Painters and Allied Trades, District Council 6, representing painters, glazers, drywall finishers, and sign and display industry workers. They remind you that belonging to a union is your right as an American. America's Workforce is presented by the Labor's International Union of North America. Feel the power right now at liuna.org. Now, back to America's Workforce. Here's Ed Flash Ferens. And remember, you can check us out on Facebook or follow us on X, formerly known as Twitter. That would be AWF Union Podcast. By the way, this next segment brought to you in part by the Ohio Federation of Teachers, oh.aft.org. Let's go to uh, line number two. And welcome to the show. This is our uh, labor dissector, labor law dissector, Andrew Strom, who is a contributor to the On Labor blog, onlabor.org. I get a lot of information on that blog each and every day. And today, Andrew is going to talk about a ruling on the joint employer rule, which was, well, it's been tossed around. It depends who's in office. Either it's pro-labor, it's anti-labor. Well, we got a pro-labor administration, so it went on the workers' side. Andrew Strom, welcome back to the show. And I tell you, you're the perfect person to to talk about this because it's important, especially, uh, and I, I use an example of a McDonald's franchise. And you've got the corporate headquarters, you've got the, franchise, the franchisees around the country, and there are many of them. And like, who's the boss? You know, who's calling the shots? Well, <laughs> right. that's and important. That, yeah, I mean, <laughs> go ahead. Absolutely. And the McDonald's, I mean, that's the one that gets a lot of the attention. And it may not even be the best example because um, the uh, there's a lot of talk about, oh, this is the end of franchising, uh, which I think is pretty much nonsense. But this is really an issue, you know, almost in every workplace in the country um, because what's happened is, you know, over the last 40 years or so, all the large companies, the ones that have the names that people recognize, have been more and more kind of sloughing off their um, more and more groups of their workers uh, to who work for, you know, other entities that nobody's ever heard of, you know, staffing agencies or cleaning contractors or, um, you know, and, you know, just small businesses uh, that, and they work inside the, um, you know, the large business. So, uh, you know, you work in an Amazon warehouse, you might work for a staffing agency rather than being, you know, working for Amazon. Um, and, uh, you know, wherever, whether it's uh, through franchising or through contracting out uh, or any of these things, right, what, like you said, the big company has all the power, right? The big company is the one that essentially get, determines how much people get paid, um, you know, what the hours of work are, uh, they have control over health and safety issues. They have control often over who can work on the premises. You know, they can bar somebody from working on the premises. So, you know, I, people have to remember that the purpose of the National Labor Relations Act is to encourage collective bargaining, right? So when workers organize what they find and, you know, my work a lot is with, um, commercial cleaners. Um, and what the workers find is that they organize and then their employer doesn't have the power to change the things that they want changed, right? So for example, 
if you want to have air conditioning uh, working in the office building after hours, green contractor can't control that. Only the building owner can control that, right? Um, and if you are barred from a place of business because, you know, the, the client says, we don't want you to come here anymore, so you lost your job. And you want to be able to have some control over that. You want to, you know, you think you have in your contract that you can only be fired for just cause, but it turns out that the client or the contractor can say, you can't come here anymore. Uh, or the, you know, maybe in the case of the franchising, they, they, they can't raise wages because they're getting, a, you know, word from the, um, you know, the headquarters that you can't raise prices. And so you can raise your wages, but you can't raise your prices. Or you have to follow this, you know, here are the rules that you have to follow for how, uh, you know, how things get made. So you can't, comp you know, you can't say, well, we need more time to make this, or we need more staff to make this, or um, we need more, you know, whatever it is that people, that workers, that drove workers to organize, uh, they want to be able to bargain with the entity that, um, that has the control over those things. And I think one of the things that employers are saying is, you know, they're saying, oh, it's not, um, you know, this is gonna lead to the death of small businesses because nobody's gonna contract out anymore or nobody's gonna use franchising anymore. I mean, the first thing is, if the whole reason that you're doing business with someone is to avoid liability, like what does that say? about right. the business model, right? <laughs> like, really, like, you're, the, you're, the only reason that you're contracting out is so that you don't have to take responsibility? Like, th those, they're not adding any value at all? I mean, that's a pretty sad commentary on, you know, the structure of these businesses. I mean, the other thing that's kind of the reality is because these businesses have so much power, you know, they have the power to dictate the terms of their contracts you know, whether it's with a franchisee or with a small contractor, they're just going to write into their contract that, um, you know, that the contractor is responsible for anything. So they're going to be able to insulate themselves that way. But I think the other point that's really important to make, because you hear a lot of, you know, employers saying it's not fair, we'd have to be liable for things that are outside of our control. But actually, for a long time, the way this has worked under the National Labor Relations Act is that, if there are two joint employers and one of them, let's say, fires the workers because they're trying to organize, uh, let, let's say the direct employer does that, uh, yeah. the client is not liable if the client can show either A, they didn't know that was happening, or B, they did know that was happening, they tried to stop it, and, but they didn't. Um, I mean, maybe in real life, you're not going to be able to show those things, but that's up to the company, right? And in other words, if, if your contractor is firing workers because they're trying to organize, then yeah, you should be liable if you're condoning that. Um, but if you're saying to the contractor, don't do that, um, then you're not really liable. And if you don't know what's happening, then you're not going to be liable. But, you know, whether you, whether you know or don't know, we probably do know, but, um, but so it's not automatic. It's not like, um, you know, I think that's some, one of the things that people uh, have a little bit of misinformation about is that, um, because that's how it works, for example, 
uh, under wage and hour law, that if two entities are joint employers, they're automatically um, jointly liable. But that's not how it works under the National Labor Relations Act. Um, you know, the, you know the, co the two entities, one can say, we didn't know that. Um, we, didn't, you know, we weren't aware that that was what was going on. Um, and that actually happens in real life. I mean, there's, there's real life examples where the, you know, one of the two joint employers uh, isn't held liable for the other's actions. Let me ask you this here, Andrew. Can they play dumb and get out of this? <laughs> I didn't know what was going on. <laughs> I mean, maybe. I think the answer is, I mean, it, it does say no or should have known. Um, so I, I think that, you know, if in that case, for example, um, you know, a group of workers are trying to organize and um, the, you know, they're all, you know, there's like a mass firing of workers who are trying to organize. I, I think it's going to be a little hard for, you know, the other entity to say, we didn't realize that was why they, what was going on. Um, but uh, yeah, they, they may be able to. I mean, I, I think this really, it, it's really, I think, more about the ability to bargain uh, than about, you know, the liability for um, the illegal acts. I think that that's, that's the sort of more important part of this is that workers can organize and they can, you know, force the, um, you know, the company that has the power to the bargaining table. And I think that's really the hope that that's what would happen here is yeah. that, you know, even though you like you work for, you know, some unnamed, you know, a contractor whose name nobody's ever heard of that you can say, well, we want to bargain with, you know, fortune 500 company that has the power to actually, um, change, you know, make the changes that we want to make. Um, and so I, I think that's, and, uh, and by the way, the other thing about the bargaining is that the rule is very clear that the, the two joint employers, only each of them only has to bargain about the issues that they have control over. You know, so there's, again, like a lot of misinformation from employers about how, you know, this is unworkable and, you know, if we just have control over this one, you know, part of their, uh, you know, how are we supposed to have to bargain about things we don't get involved in? Um, but, uh, the, you know, the other thing about this rule is that it shouldn't really be this controversial. It's only because the Republicans are so anti-worker when they get in power and, you know, the Republicans in Congress are so anti-worker that when, um, during the Obama years, they uh, announced a rule that was similar to this one. And, you know, the whole Republican, you know, um, PR machine just got cranked up like this was, um, you know, the biggest crisis of all time and this was going to kill jobs and, it, you know, this was going to ruin the economy and this was going to be the death of small business. <laughs> and, you know, <laughs> just like this level of hysteria about it. Uh, and it was outrageous and unprecedented. And, and they challenged the rule in court. And there were really two components of the rule that, that they challenged, and they lost on both of them. And one of those components was the notion that you could be a joint employer if you had certain power, even if there was no evidence that you had exercised that power. Right? So in other words, the big business has a contract with, you know, let's say the cleaning contractor that says, 
we have the right uh, to decide who works in our place. You know, we have the right to, um, to tell you to remove anyone. And what they wanted was they wanted that, you know, the union would have to prove that they had exercised that right. Um, and, you know, maybe more, even more than once. Um, and, you know, that's a hard, much harder thing to do, right, to sort of, because in many cases, it may just be, you know, a wink and a nod, right? There may not be a paper trail that says, fire this person, right? It may have been a phone call that said, fire this person. And there's no record of, um, you know, of that phone call. So it's really just about, you know, how do you prove this? And, you know, and, and I think the thing about this is the employers will say, oh, we want certainty. And if the test is whether you have the authority, it's actually a much easier test for everyone because then you can look at the contract and say you have the authority. If the test is, you know, how many times you've exercised that authority, it becomes a much more complicated, um, you know, standard for everybody of whether you're going to be able to prove that and how many times is too many times and, um, you know, what is the evidence that, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So, uh, Bottom line, this is going to affect a whole lot of people a in whole the United lot. States. Yeah, because yeah. that's how our economy works now. Yeah, yeah. so yeah. It's, it's going to be good for workers as long as it, you know, holds up, as long as we don't have a new president coming in and undoing it in 2024. <laughs> And that can happen. I mean, that, that's what happened with the other, the previous administration. Uh, but now, yes, to be uh, clear, this doesn't yeah. go into effect until December 26th. Is that right? December 26th. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, you know what? We take each win as it comes. And exactly. we, we, <laughs> we smile when it happens and we hope it stays with us. So, <laughs> but I thank you so much for joining us today and explaining this, uh, this, uh, NLRB finalizing their joint employer rule. Very, very controversial. Okay. And this has been going on a long time. Andrew Strom contributor to the on labor blog on labor.org. Look for us, his commentaries on there. You take care and I'm sure we'll have more yeah, to talk about. Okay. Good talking to you. Okay. So. Always a pleasure. And that'll be it for another edition of America's Workforce. Tomorrow, we got the UAW and the Service Employees International Union. Until then, all of you have a safe and wonderful day. That concludes another episode of the America's Workforce Radio Podcast. Thanks for listening. And be sure to subscribe so you never miss a show. America's Workforce is a production of Labor Tools and BMA Media Group. Find out more information online at labortools.com.